Welcome to Search for Meaning. I'm Yoshi Zweibach. Thanks for joining me. My guest today is Rabbi Ken Chasen, and it was an absolute pleasure to sit down with my friend of more than four decades, discussing his journey to the rabbinate, his career in music, our work together in the Jewish band Matovu. I love learning new things about someone I've known for such a long time and sharing lots of laughs. Stay tuned and be inspired. Sorry, excuse me. <laughs> all right. Well, first of all, I just want to say thank you for spending your birthday with me. My pleasure. It's an honor. And I would have wanted to spend that time with you anyway on your birthday, but it just so happened and it all worked out that you were available for the podcast. And my people have been reaching out to your people for months to try to schedule this <laughs> yeah. darn thing. Yeah, no, my agent can be really persnickety like It's that. difficult, yeah, but we made, it, we made it work. So we go way back. And in fact, I mean... Is there who else in LA besides members of your own family has have known you as long as I have? I don't think that there is anybody. I mean, I I, I have a lot of longtime friends. You know, I, I had a first career uh, writing music and editing scores for television and film, and that was in the late '80s and early '90s. So I have a lot of friends from like the end of my college years and uh, and those that that first my twenties first career. I have a lot of LA based friends. Um, but obviously we, we go back to the Midwest together and your older brother was my, and your older sister, uh, dear friends of mine from high school years. And that's when we first got to know each other. So you were born in Chicago, yep. but you moved to Kansas city I was when about, you were pretty young. I was just turning eight years old. So I was basically halfway through my childhood, the young half. When you think of home, is it always Kansas city? Yeah. I mean, you know, right now my older boy goes, uh, my, my middle of my three kids is a senior at Northwestern. So he's going to school on the North shore and my aunts, uncles, cousins still live on the North shore. Um, so it's, uh, it's sweet. He's, he goes to school, I don't know, eight or nine miles away from my childhood home that has connected us. Um, it's just given us more excuses to get back there and to connect with my cousins who I love there very much. But yeah, when I think, Really, you know, the, my where was I bar mitzvah? Where was I confirmed? Where did I graduate? Uh, you know, most of the the remember the the growing up years that I remember are the ones that took place in Kansas. It's also sports teams. When you think about who are your favorite sports teams, the Cubs think, are definitely second to the Royals. The Chiefs are far out ahead of all other contenders. One of my early memories of spending time with you in Los Angeles was coming over to your apartment to, uh, what was the street you were on? Uh, Sharon? Shenandoah. Shenandoah. Yeah. And I came over to watch a Chiefs game and I showed up and you had, you were red head to toe. <laughs> and uh, and listeners who know Rabbi Chasen know that he's a high energy guy. But to watch a Chiefs game with him, now we're talking. Is a little terrifying. High energy. It was fantastic. It's fantastic if they're right. winning. Right. But that's how I grew up. My dad... Um, you know, when there was a Nebraska Cornhusker game on, I mean, you know, the neighbors could hear my dad getting excited, agitated, you know, terrified, all those things. Now, the football is definitely in a, a, a secondary religious pursuit. Was sports always something that you were super passionate about? Absolutely. I, 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 was, I was an athlete as a kid, not like a superstar athlete, but I, I played a lot of sports growing up and still do. And, uh, and, was definitely raised to be a fan. My, my, my parents were Chicagoans and big time, especially Cubs, but also Bears fans. And so I grew up in a house where that was definitely part of the scene. And we were, when we moved to Kansas City, the it was 1973. So the, the Chiefs team that won Super Bowl four that brought the AFL and the NFL together to become the, the merged NFL that we now know, um, that Chiefs team won Super Bowl four, but it happened while we were still in in Chicago. We moved to Kansas City. That team had they were all still all those guys were still playing. They just had gotten old, and so the team we got to see that team when it had become a bad team. And then my entire childhood, we had season tickets. We went to the Chiefs all the time, but they were terrible. They literally did not one time make the playoffs during the make the playoff. Forget about win 
they did not make a postseason in my entire childhood. So uh, I feel as though uh, there's a blessing shining down upon my football life, late in my life, for me to have this opportunity. You know, God bless, they've sent me Patrick Mahomes. And late in your life, I'm going to gently push back on that, even though it is your birthday. Yes. There's lots of living. Well, my tale is halfway told. Oh, well, maybe. Now, uh, huge Matovu fans out there, of which there are <laughs> legions, um, will recognize that lyric from uh, one of Ken's com- compositions. Um, but we're not quite there yet in the, in the story. So you've got this passion for sports. You've moved to Kansas City. But your passion for Judaism is probably related to music. For sure. How did that how did that really develop and when did you really start feeling that that pull? I feel like um I am really in the sweet spot age-wise for to have had the kind of explosive self-discovery of of music, my musical life being merged with my Jewish life than I did by going to Jewish camp. You know, I was born in 1965, so when I went to Goldman Union Camp Institute, uh, the Reform Movement's camp in Indiana, which was what our synagogue fed into. Lovingly um, known as Gucci. Gucci, exactly. Um, When I went to camp there in the summer of 77, I was still 11. I'd be turning 12 later that year. I was already playing the guitar. I started around age 10. And I, because it was 1977, if you think about the Reform Movement at that time, the body of music that was animating camp didn't exist in synagogues. I mean, it literally was never to be heard. So while I was busy becoming a guitarist... Because it was so new and it takes time for it to trickle in or because there was such resistance? Both. Both, yeah. Both. I mean, you know, when I when I made it to camp, I learned years later as I kind of became a teacher of song leading, um, started working on the faculty of Havana Shira, which is the reform movement's um, sort of premier uh, song leading institute. Um, did a lot of studying of the development of that art And I discovered that had I gone to camp, I don't know, 10 years earlier, not a long time earlier, the the camp songbook would have been all American folk tunes and Israeli music. That would be the Jewish content that was there because there was no body of American contemporary Jewish music. It just didn't exist yet. Now, when I made it to camp in 1977, the songbook was those two things, a lot of American folk tunes uh, a lot of Israeli songs that I learned for the first time at camp. And it was, there were the, these names that were omnipresent in the songbook. Debbie Friedman, Jeff Klepper, Danny Freelander. And it really was it. I mean, there were a few other songs that were kicking around, still are, from some of the other early composers at that time. But th- honestly, the songbook, I just remember, because our songbook had the names of the composers next to all these songs. And I didn't know who those people were. But this we, D. Friedman everywhere. It was everywhere. Yeah. Omnipresent in the book. And, and I was and, just a few years behind you in camp. Right. But it was the same thing. Yep. You know, so when I went to Schwader camp, um, and my first summer was, I think, 78. Yeah. Um, those were the songs. Those were the exact same songs I was this learning. Was it? And so I got to camp not knowing that my guitar really had any efficacy. You already a, knew how to play the guitar. I pl- knew how to play the guitar. In fact, I knew how to play it pretty well. So much so that you know, I went off to camp not really knowing what you know, dining hall singing, camp song leading. I had no idea what that was. But in that first four week session. Even as an eleven-year-old kid, I managed to somehow talk in to I talked to the head song leader, who uh, ended up becoming a friend, or colleague, or a now retired rabbi, um, uh, into having letting me do a lunchtime song session at camp. I was eleven years old. The guitar was bigger than I was, and I was out there. And, and I, you know, look, I because you were playing a full-body dreadnought. I was playing a full-body dreadnought, and I was a little itty bitty kid, and I was a late bloomer to begin with. Right. So as eleven-year-olds go, I was probably looked like I was more like eight or nine. That's a, it's a big guitar. It was a big instrument, and uh, but I was pretty good at if I heard a song already back then, I could usually figure out what the chords were or the. The songbook had the chords, and so I could oftentimes you know, learn it and kind of commit it to memory. And I learned a set of whatever four or five dining hall songs, and I led a lunchtime song session. I was eleven years old. I didn't know such things even existed. Do you much remember less your to... first set? What were some of the songs? I do remember some of the songs. Set. One of them was "Weave Me the Sunshine." Um, one of them was "Im Tirzu," Debbie Friedman's "Im Tirzu." Those might be the only two I can remember for sure that were in that set. But those were kind of like camp classics at the time. And, and weave, uh, weave, weave, weave me the sunshine out of the fog. Yep. Out of the fog. Right. Oh, exactly. Man. So I. Who's uh, that, who that by? 
that's an American folk tune. I think yeah. it's uh, Weaving the Sunshine. Is it by the Weavers? No. No, I, you know what? I'm going to be embarrassed. Whoever's listening to this, I'm embarrassed that I should know. We'll, who, we'll add it in later, post-production. W- was it Peter, Paul, and Mary, maybe? Rabbi Chasen for the win. It was Peter, Paul, and Mary. And fun fact for you Matovu fans out there, we once opened for Peter Yarrow. Let's get back to the interview. But it was an American popular song because folk music was pop music in the late 1960s, and that's yeah. what it was. So sung at camp. Again, that canon of music was still very much a part of camp life, but there was this influx of Debbie and Jeff and Danny's music, which really had not been created but for five to seven years earlier. I mean, it was, and, it was, and they were recording albums, and right. it was, they were proliferating greatly. But this business now of how many extraordinary talent, I mean, all of us, uh, end up, you know, if you live here in Los Angeles, there are so many talented people on their either on their way to cantorial school or rabbinical school or to become Jewish educators or who just decide they want to be Jewish music artists. And that's how they make their living. They tour around the country. They work as song leaders. They write and record their music. Um, that didn't exist. And I, and I, before I got to camp, I had no idea that any of this music, I, to me, the music was the body of the, you know, the, the canon of classical reform music, which frankly I loved. Right. I, and I still do. I have a soft spot for this all that stuff. This was at B'nai Yehuda. B'nai Yehuda in Kansas City. is right. the big giant reform congregation. It was in the city then. Now it's out in the suburbs closer to where I actually grew up. But it was a city congregation when I was growing up. And yeah, I loved our cantor. And I, in fact, I was, as a, as a young kid, I was on the, uh, they placed me like on the search the committee oh, yeah. to select our cantor in 1978. I was, uh, I was like on my way to bar mitzvah and I was also on the search committee to hire our new cantor who became a really important part of my life. Um, and that music was all high art music, my music with choirs, music with the organ. And I have a great soft spot for that stuff, but I had no idea that what I was doing with my own hands, with a guitar in my hand and with my own voice, the kind of music that existed out there, I, I was not even aware that it was there. So I came home from that first summer, you know, apropos of your question, I mean, that, those parts of my life, my Jewish identity found a home in my music, which was completely and utterly unanticipated when I went to camp. I just didn't know that was a thing. Right. And was it surprising to you that because you could play the guitar and lead a lunch song session, suddenly all of the people at camp were like, wow, who's this guy? Look at Kenny go. I mean, I remember the first time I did a song session and it was a disaster. I'm sure yours was much better. But um, yeah, I forgot the chords, forgot the words, was in a different key, um, but still. Had a lot of great you know, energy. Good energy. It was at Kutz camp and it was like, I got up and did it. And it was, you know, it was amazing. And certainly, um, you know, it felt, it felt great. Um, did you have that sort of instant moment where you're like, this is really, this is exciting. Without a doubt, it was a a moment of, yeah, I mean, look at my life. It clearly was an epiphanal moment. Um, I remember that clearly my older brother, I have a brother who's three years older than me, and he was a camp, he was still a camper at the time. Um, And I'm sure he was terrified for me. Um, you know, I'm up there in front of the entire camp and it's, you know, I just brought my little brother to camp and now he's leading the song session. I just remember that as the songs, it's actually really one of my sweetest memories of my brother growing up because we were normal brothers. He spent a lot of time beating the crap out of me. But when I look back on that one memory, I just remember him. I was kind of walking off with my guitar as I finished the song session. People were like, yeah, you know, give it a lot of love. And he came over and he found me and gave me a hug in front of everybody. It was like, it, it was, I think it was more that, okay, my little brother did just not humiliate himself. I, I did not just have a disaster in the family take place in front of the entire camp. So whatever the it was, it felt like a relief hug. The Chasen family name. The Chasen right. family name. I did not destroy his right. family name. Right. That's exactly right. So that was your first summer at Gucci. You're already song leading. Yeah. And I know you went back for years and you worked at Gucci. Yeah. So I ended up, I, my, I was a camper there 77 through 1980. Uh, the, the next summer that I could have been in the Avodah program, that was when I went and did what you did years later. I went to Kutz because Kutz Camp was the national leadership development camp for um, high schoolers in the reform movement. And uh, it had a track 
for teaching people to be songwriters. So it was perfect. And at that point, I was already, by the time I made it to, that was the summer before my 11th grade year. Um, by the time I made it to that uh, summer, I already was doing a lot of, you know, if it was a family Shabbat service or in the religious school in the Friday night, they would have me involved in doing the music. Um, if it was a religious school, special like retreat weekend or something, they already had me doing songwriting in the school. Um, but I really hadn't done much to learn the art other than to watch other people do it and try to imitate that. So I went to Kutz Camp in the summer of 1981, found some great mentors who are still really important friends of mine. And, um, and now, you know, colleagues and teaching other people to songlate. It's been a very sweet part of my life that that music, which I had no idea was going to be connected to my Jewish self at all, ended up not only being the centerpiece of my Jewish life, but it brought all these people into my life, even back then, who, you know, I'm, I'm 57 years old today. Uh, these are people I'm meeting when I'm 15, 16 years old, and they're still very much a part of my life. The people who taught me then, Cantor Leon Schur, um, uh, Mary Arian for Hebrew Union College. I mean, these all these were that's where I met all these people that summer. They were teachers of mine that summer in 1981. It's amazing those kind of full circle moments. Incredible. Where now you're with with them, and you just feel like wow. We had a lot of Arian. Um, Oh yeah, come, Mary's daughter, of course, with, is now a great Jewish artist. I mean, really one of the preeminent composers out there right now. Yeah. And, and she came out as an artist in residence, um, boy, now about a year ago. Yep. And it was really wonderful for me to be able to, I didn't realize that the summer I was at Kutz, I mean, I should have kind of put it together. Of course, she was there too, as, you know, the daughter Faculty of, brat. Faculty brat, right. Well, I remember um, the summer that I was there, Mary was pregnant, and I'm pretty sure that was the pregnancy with Alana. I'm pretty wow. sure that she was pregnant with Alana, who now, of course, is a giant of Jewish music right. in her own right. Um, we, of course, were teenagers. We thought we were very funny um, because, of course, Mary and her husband, Ramey, was also a song leading teacher at Kutz that summer. And all of us teens thought we were very funny. We were going to name the baby. We thought that they should name their forthcoming baby Barb. Barbarian, barbarian. Like that, like and we that. thought we were so right. funny. It's not that bad. It's, it's, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. So um, do you remember when you first started to think about the rabbinate, when you first kind of put it together, or, you know, Jewish professional life yeah. more broadly? What's interesting is it, it wasn't, you would think that it would have gone kind of hand in hand with all of this, and it really didn't. Um, I... Uh, I did end up becoming a song leader at camp... Uh, starting with the summer right before I went off to college. And even then, it really hadn't crossed my mind. I think a part of that is, you know, the rabbinate was really different when I was growing up in the 1970s. Um, I was lucky, you know, my, my rabbi at my synagogue, in fact, both of the rabbis, long-time rabbis in my synagogue, came as brand new, newly ordained rabbis. They were very young at that time. And there was a somewhat different vibe, a coming of a new era. Michael Zedek and, Michael Zedek and Mark, Mark Levin. Levin exactly, right. came during those years in the 1970s when we were there. But when I first arrived, their predecessor, uh, Rabbi William Silverman, Allah Shalom, was the, the senior rabbi of the temple. And he was what you would expect of... A rabbi of the middle part of the 20th century. It was, um, the bima was very high. He gave... Uh, the robe was black and long. The robe was very black and long. And he gave very... I remember being sort of overwhelmed by him as a preacher, but also a little terrified. I mean, it was right. a lot of fire and brimstone. The, the service was really about the sermon. Um, and... Uh, you know, I, I it, rabbis felt very high and mighty. And so for most of my childhood, I just kind of, I can't say I thought about it and somehow dismissed the idea of being a rabbi. I think I never really thought about it because rabbis seemed like these uh, paragons of virtue and I knew myself to be the shlemiel that I was. And so I felt like rabbis were, must have be grown on rabbi trees and I'm certainly not the fruit of a rabbi tree. So it didn't cross my mind until... Um, the, the summer, the first summer I went back to Gucci as a song leader was the summer of 83. It's right before I started college. And now very recently retired. Um, I was a counselor in addition to being song leader that summer. And the unit head in the uh, division that I was a counselor in uh, was a rabbinical student by the name of Bruce Lustig. He became the uh, first assistant and then associate and then finally senior rabbi for most of his career at Big Giant Reform Congregation, Washington, D.C., Washington Hebrew Congregation. And Bruce 
had a little student pulpit, you know, in, this, in Cincinnati, uh, the Cincinnati campus of Hebrew Union College, most of the rabbinical students don't have internships in larger congregations because there's only a, a few larger congregations in Cincinnati to, to work in. Most have small student pulpits in sometimes very far away places, uh, little congregations that can't afford full-time rabbi, but if you're talking about bringing in uh, a rabbinical student maybe every other weekend, uh, the the congregation gets great benefit. They can afford the rabbinic support that they're getting, and the students get a great benefit. They get a chance sure. to learn how to be rabbis. Sure. So Bruce had a student pulpit in the little town, southeastern Indiana, Richmond, Indiana. It was home to, it is home to a Jesuit college by the name of Earlham College. Probably never even heard of it. Earlham College was sort of the centerpiece of Richmond, Indiana, and they have a little little synagogue there, mostly comprised of either professors or administrators of the of the college. A few other, of course, a couple of business owners and doctors and lawyers, whatnot, but a little congregation of maybe 40 families, Temple Beth Baruch, which of course makes no sense whatsoever in Hebrew, but uh, those were two Hebrew words that they put, they knew, and they put them next to each other, and they don't really mean very much next to each other, but that was the name of the synagogue, and um, Bruce had a student pulpit there, and when, we, when the summer of 83 was winding down, um, and we'd gotten to know each other pretty well, my working underneath him as a counselor, um, he said, look, I have this little student pulpit, I go there every other weekend, um, I got the high holidays coming up, I think he was a third year rabbinical student at the time. And he says, um, you know, I'm not a singer. Uh, if I, I'm going to go be the fake rabbi of this little congregation in Indiana. If I sent you all the sheet music, would, you, the be music, the would you come be the fake canter with Is me? Is that That's how it, he put it? Pretty much. I, I don't know if it was verbatim, but that was pretty much kind of the vibe. I like that. And I was like, they'll pay me to do that? And he's like, yeah, no, we'll, we'll like hire you to come and do the holidays with me. And I thought that was super cool because, again, I grew up, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't a, a, a gung-ho religious school kid. I often got fished out of the, uh, during religious school hours, out of the uh, the neighborhood. There was a, the New York deli and, uh, New York bakery and deli was right around the corner from our synagogue. And there were many, Somehow you just many ended times, up there. many times that somebody from the school during school hours found me with a half-eaten eclair in hand, um, <laughs> having to explain myself. So With mouthful. With I didn't ma- do I, 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 I don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah, there was a lot of that. Um, but but I wasn't like hostile to the temple or anything like that. And again, the temple was really my first employer. I mean, they when I was confirmed, they hired me to join the cantor in co-teaching music in the religious school. So I had a happy Jewish life, but I had never imagined leading High Holy Day worship. And that was kind of cool. It was sort of exciting. And it was a real challenge to learn all that music. Um, and, what, and you were in college already? I was or? just about to start college. I was 17 years old when I sang you know, Avinu Malkenu wow. in front of the open ark at Temple Beth Baruch in uh, Richmond, Indiana with Bruce Lustig. And that was without a doubt the, the really the epiphanal thing. I, it, what that did is, because Bruce was a friend from camp, albeit a little older, not much older, you know, a, a mentor friend. At that age, being five, six years older is a big deal. Right. And uh, Bruce was... A, a real guy and he was going to be a rabbi and we'd do services together and we'd come back to the hotel and we'd order a pizza and watch horror movies on TV and I was like why this is, and I watched what he was doing you know he I'd bring my books with me and you know get stuff done in between and he'd be running out to visit people in the hospital and plan some things for the school and it's where I first kind of imagined what that looked like and imagined real people Right. An ordinary person doing it. And that's really where the idea is. And someone first that occurred. you could see yourself be. Exactly. Because he's just. It's the first you know, time it, right. rabbis no longer seemed like they were on rabbi trees. It seemed like a profession. It right. seemed like a calling that one could choose. Right. But then music took you in a different direction because obviously uh, you had already mentioned you referenced your right. your career in music. So how did you get from you know kind of this openness to that? Yeah. But then another door opened for so you. So it's kind of a. That's actually a really lovely story to which I owe. Deep thanks to another mentor of mine, uh, Rabbi Lee Bicell. Um, when I was in college, I, that was really where I started getting serious about the idea of potentially being a rabbi. But I also had my band in college, and we were doing a fair amount of gigging. And I started getting serious as a songwriter of, of uh, secular, popular music. And 
in, uh, I guess it was the summer between my sophomore and junior year, I went to, I put my band in the car and I drove them all down to Nashville. Not because we were doing country music, but because it was the closest, it was a drivable distance to a major music center. And I recorded my first demo tape of like a half a dozen songs with my band. And listeners who are under 30, recording studios were places <laughs> that you used to go to actually... They had tape <laughs> that was on little reels and it like, turned round and round. And you, made, you had to you, go somewhere to record music as opposed to just have a laptop. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. So, so we went down uh, and we recorded all of these songs, and I started kind of getting serious about myself as a songwriter. And I was watching. I did that trip again a year later. I then deeper into college, I uh, came out to L.A. and I did a couple of songs in L.A. studios to get learn a little bit about the L.A. studio scene. And I started taking myself pretty seriously, especially as a songwriter. I, I didn't. I was pretty sure at that point I wasn't dreaming of being a recording artist and being on the road all the time. But I was attracted to the idea of being a songwriter. Um, and I started zeroing in on the idea of television and film as opposed to the record industry, which felt a little more um, image-centric and therefore a little more random. Um, a lot of the people who I really admired in the TV and film music business, I just felt were just super talents, and it would be really fun to be a part of that scene. Um, so, uh, yeah, I had both of those interests growing in me during my college years, and a, uh, a rabbinical student at that time when I was in college, again, this guy's three years older than me, but he came from my synagogue, Rabbi Now Down in Texas, Rabbi Eddie Goldberg, um, was a student at Hebrew Union College on the LA campus when I was out in LA to do some recording stuff. And I was also interested in the rabbinate. And I asked him, you know, can you arrange, you know, uh, help me figure out like how, who would I meet with over at the college if I wanted to learn more about applying. And at that time, Levi Sell was the, I guess it was the assistant or associate dean, whoever was the sort of the second in command dean back then was the admissions person. And so that was the person who would meet with any prospective students. And so he was that dean, that associate dean at the time. And I had a meeting with him that absolutely changed my life. I, I owe Lee, I've said this to him many times, and I actually asked him to install me in my first pulpit as assistant rabbi in New York, uh, largely because my life would never have played out the way that it did if it weren't for the counsel that he gave me that day. And I don't know that it's counsel that uh, the college would necessarily give out today. Um, it, it took some vision on his part and some real seeing me and here listening to me to do it. He said, um, you know, you sound like you kind of want to be two people. And if you did the rabbinate first, it'll take you a minimum of five years just even to get out of school. And then I got to think at least a minimum of another five years to really start doing the work that you dreamed of doing to be a rabbi. By the time you get to doing that, your life may be so settled in any number of other ways that you might never get the chance to be this other person that you're picturing. But if you did that first, you might, yeah, and look, obviously that means you might not come back, but if you were to do it first, you might really get the opportunity to be both people. Uh, and I remember, you know, I, I, I was a suburban Midwestern kid who was a very serious student and I did very, I got like really good grades in college and everybody who was like me at my university was planning their next move to either some great graduate program or to some really cool job. And I, I will tell you right now, if Lee Bicell had decided to feast upon my insecurity uh, about just taking a lark and graduating college and moving out to LA knowing nothing and nobody, if he had said, well, you know, if you were to come back a couple of years later with an application, we might, might not doubt, be, might not be a spot for we you. We might doubt your sincerity. Think of you as a little flaky. I mean, that's all he would have had to say. And I'd right. be like, give me the application. I'm filling this thing out while we're sitting here. That's not the advice he gave me. He actually gave me the courage. In fact, I even remember asking him, Yosh, I asked him, but what happens if I go out there and I bomb out? And such a great rabbi's answer he gave me. I've, I've told, I love telling this story because it's, I've, I try to be this type of advisor to young people. He said to me, you know, I'm looking at your resume and you haven't done a lot of failing in your life. If you went out to LA and you failed at music, you'd probably be a better rabbi. You'd understand what it's like to fail at a couple of things. And no matter what 
hard knocks, blessings, successes, failures, whatever life experience you get from doing that will only make you a stronger candidate, not a weaker one. Wow. And that was like a green light. I felt like that was a permission slip that he handed me. And so from that moment, I knew I was not applying to Hebrew Union College straight out of college. I went out to LA. I spent six years. Uh, I was mo most of that time working on what's now the Sony Pictures lot um, in Culver City. Back when I started, it was Lorimar Telepictures. Wow. And I was uh, working on lots of TV shows, big time uh, primetime show, TV shows, those primetime soaps. Uh, in the, their later years, because it was the late 80s. So I worked on Knott's Landing and Dallas and Falcon Crest and uh, some sitcoms, Full, Full House and Perfect Strangers. And uh, it was amazing. I, I, it, was a, it was really a dream. Uh, I would work in my studio space and I'd go to the commissary to pick up my lunch and there's all these movie stars in line to get their sandwich while I'm getting mine. And then I'd go and I'd take my sandwich and go sit in the control room uh, of the scoring stage and my lunch hour, I'm eating my sandwich. I'm watching John Williams conduct the orchestra for Prince of Tides. Uh, it was an amazing chapter of my life, which I never would have gotten the chance to live if Lee had um, even lifted a finger to cause doubt in me. Instead, he emboldened me. And I think he also felt like he saw a rabbinic soul there and felt like what ended up happening would likely happen, which was that as much as I loved that life, and I would never give those years back for anything. Um, it was very exciting to hear my own song, my own singing, my own song on network television. It was all very exciting when that first started happening. But I also got to a point where I was spending most of my time alone in a studio space, either in my apartment in Brentwood or in, on the, the lot I had a studio space. And I was mostly writing on my own, recording on my own, working on my own. So much of what I do now, collaborating with other people, being relational, uh, reading, thinking, exchanging ideas. There was just all, almost none of that going on in my life during those years. And I found all these other, this one part of myself was being very well nourished. And then all these other parts of myself were kind of lying dormant during those years. And uh, I... Yeah, I hit a point where I was kind of like, I, I want to, I want to have all of it in my I'm ready, life. Ready to be that second person. Yeah, and I, and I was really lucky that by the time I, you know, by waiting those number of years, that's how you and I ended up in rabbinical school together at the same time, even though I'm a few years older. And um, in that interim time, that now I'm in rabbinical school, and it's the middle 1990s. And the dam is finally breaking between that music is only welcome at camp. Now, suddenly, there's an interest in that music. At least there's some tension, there's some resistance, but there's also some real hunger for that music being welcome right. on the Bema. And I show up kind of at the exact right time to be in that first wave of singing rabbis. Right. Well, and so much of that, I think, actually had to do with those students who had the same trajectory as you. So they had grown up the Bruce Lustigs who right. had gone to camp. They loved that music. Now they're coming into pulpits and they're like, oh, you know, maybe we could do this setting or that setting. That's right. Um, and same thing with students coming into cantorial school who themselves had started to grow up on that music. Uh, so you end up at HUC. And I remember, because when I first met you, it was really through my brother, right. who you you two were in the same year in youth group, and so you would go to Mofti conventions and things like that together. I remember staying at your house when you were like 12 and I was 16. And I just wanted to tag along and <laughs> hang out with, with the cool guys, um, which you guys reluctantly allowed me to. Uh, <laughs> no, you were definitely the your cool guys. Your brother was. No. Actually, that's why I hung out with him. <laughs> you were definitely the cool guys. Um, but I think my mother of blessed memory probably said to you, hey, you know, include... I was Josh back then, include Josh. Without a doubt, your but, mother was but now, the best. But now I ended up, I actually started rabbinical school a year ahead of you. Yeah. And I remember very well a conversation with you when you were applying to HUC. And we, you know, it was like reconnecting with, you know, my best buddy from youth group's baby brother, yeah. who's now in rabbinical school. And um, we had a conversation about that. I remember we talked about Hebrew. Um, and not surprisingly, you were a quick student uh, you knew some Hebrew, but but you know you you were a quick student in terms of growing your Hebrew knowledge, and then we because I did the education program, then we ended up being in the same ordination class, and uh, and I invited you because we were I, I had a band, yep. um, 
and we were coming to Cincinnati for the Cincinnati Jewish Music Festival. And I was like, well, you know, Kenny's one of the most talented musicians I know. Maybe he will join us for this festival. And so Steve Brodsky and I end up in your living room at the, it was like a townhouse. It, that exactly, you it was like Allison a rented had. house. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, uh, and we ended up, and it was this, I remember it as this incredibly sort of magical moment where these harmonies that Steve and I had worked out, all of a sudden there's this third voice and it kind of, it's like something clicked in and locked in. It was like, oh, that's how that's supposed to sound. <laughs> and it was like every song. And the other thing is, uh, listener, you probably, if you know Ken Chasing, you know this about him. He's, he's, he's a musical genius. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's easy for me to, to say that because it's true. But, you know, no matter what key the song was in, no matter, you know, what the chord changes were, it took him about three seconds to be like, oh, yeah. And then he just ha- had it locked in. And all of a sudden, there's these harmonies he's doing. And just the way, and this was just luck. I mean, the way Steve's oh, yeah. voice and my voice and your voice worked, it you, you always, it just fit. You yeah. know, everything just fit. And we did that uh, performance. I think we opened up for Peter Yarrow, yeah. which was kind of fun. And it was it was so much fun. I just remember it being easy and fun. And then the next thing you know, there was a cage conference. Yep. And, you know, you were there. And then uh, you were in the band. Yeah, you guys invited me to join. You know, the, the, again, I really owe, and much the way I owe Lee for providing me the, the on-ramp to my first career, and ultimately both of my careers, uh, I really owe you and Steve. You know, when I went back to rabbinical school, I did not think I was going to start becoming a big Jewish songwriter. And in fact, I had not written any Jewish music at the time when, when we did that. You know, we were together at the Los Angeles campus of Hebrew Union College. I was not writing any Jewish music, and you guys were recording. And I remember you were working on only this at the time, and you would bring me, because you wanted my opinion as someone who used to work in the music business. You know, here's a rough cut of some of these tracks. We're working on Sam Glazer was producing the record, and you guys wanted me to take a listen. And that was part of how I learned all those songs, was I was listening to these rough tracks and giving you guys feedback about mixes and about production, you know, what, what, what has different arrangements you might do, whatever it was. And so I, these songs started become fam- becoming familiar to me. By the time in Cincinnati, you guys came for that folk festival. Yeah, you came by the house. I already pretty much knew the songs from having heard them in those you know, early uh, versions of them. And uh, because I joined the band, I, the first Jewish song I wrote was The Parents' Prayer, which I wrote in my senior year at HEC. I, I didn't really start writing Jewish songs until I was almost already ordained. Um, and uh, which is still one of my all-time favorite Ken Chasen right. compositions. But yeah, we did that in, in when I was in Northern California every Shabbat afternoon uh, in Shabbaton. We sang Parents' Prayer. It's a sweet and piece. There are still, and this is such a beautiful thing about about music is you know the 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 music memory is such that there are over the decade that I worked there, you know literally hundreds yeah. of people who are now grown-ups that if they heard that song again, I mean, it would instantly Lots of great take them music. back music to this is, place. Music locates you. Here with you beside me I feel so greatly blessed This moment means much more than I can say A time to be together A time for us to rest Shabbat is here, the time has come To celebrate the day So I hold you close My hands upon your And from me to you, my child, these words are said. You seem high May God give you life and strength like Joseph's son. Yesi me 
God make you like our mothers, like our blessed ones. As I watch you growing, I smile through my tears. Sometimes I wish you'd stay. I mean, I hear a song on the radio, I'm like, sixth grade, uh, you know, my backyard playing football with my buddies. I mean, like it's, it's, it totally locates you. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think I would have, I don't know. I, it's hard to guess. I, I'll just put it this way. I certainly had no aspirations or plans to be a Jewish songwriter. Um, I did expect that I was going to be a guitar playing rabbi, that there'd be a guitar in my hands. You know, I think the rabbis before us, that, that era that Bruce was a part of, most of those rabbis, who ordained just a few years before us, a little, little older than us, felt a pressure, a weird pressure to kind of put the guitar down when they got ordained. It was, it was like, if you want to be taken seriously as a rabbi, it's time to stop being a song leader and show that you've got some gravitas by being a rabbi. Um, and I, one of the things I'm proud of also is that as I went further down that road, I managed to coax some of those rabbis Back pick in. the guitar yeah. back up. I'm like, yeah. whoever told you put the guitar down, bad idea. We um, have this toolbox, and yeah. you've got this great tool in it. That's right. You know, I, I um, will gladly take whatever credit you want to give me, and I'm sure Steve would as well, but uh, the truth is, just knowing you as I do, I, I can't imagine that part of you not finding a way to express itself. What makes me feel lucky is that, um, and I will take credit for extending the invitation at the right time to the yeah. right person. And it is the serendipitous nature of life. You know, if we hadn't had that connection through my brother Adam, and and I remember one Imtut, Mofti Tut, um, Mofti Institute at, at uh, Camp Sabra, where you were the song leader yep. there. And I just remember it was like, now I was, that was a few years later, yeah, right? Yeah, I was, I was playing midway through college, you were midway through high school. Yeah, yeah. And, it was the, and the fact that like this amazing song leader was someone who, you know, I had this relationship with was already very cool for me. And I loved that. And that really was something that I ended up going to Kutz right around that time yeah. and was a, you know, aspiring song leader. I was already playing the guitar and learning, but you know, you were light years ahead of me. And I was like, wow, but because of all those relationships and because of those moments, you know, things end up happening. And what makes me really, really happy is that some of the things that um, I've been really proud to be able to collaborate with you on that are now part of the world that otherwise wouldn't have been part of the world. Like you'd be yeah. writing music and I'd probably be writing music, but some of the things that we created together a hundred percent would not exist. Without a doubt. And they certainly wouldn't exist the way they do. And and I, I think that's a beautiful part of life that you have those kinds of encounters. It takes openness. I mean, one thing I've learned in writing songs with you and creating things with you is that it there's a lot of trust that you have to develop. There's a lot of you know, openness that you have to exhibit. There's a lot of ego suppression that has to happen because you have to be able to say, well, I don't know, maybe maybe his idea is better than mine. And can I kind of clear the palate enough, you know, and sort of reset everything enough to hear it again and say, yeah, you know what? I like that better. For me, it's, I think, um, one of the things that's been so fun about collaborating with you is, and I, I've always just gravitated towards I love collaborating with people who have skills I don't have you know and I love giving something to you and saying Kenny you know do something with these chords to make it more interesting and I know you will you know I, I know you'll do that because you know you have that in you um and and then the the output is invariably something that I'm just thrilled with I feel like wow you know um that's just that's just better than it otherwise would have been yeah, we've done that a lot over the, over the years, and you're absolutely right. There are things that exist in a form that, w without a doubt, without that kismet, whatever you can't really describe what it is, they would not exist. And they're out there. And that's the great thing with music is, you know, it really kind of belongs to everybody else once you put it out there. Um, the, the great, there are a lot of pieces that I feel that pride about us having thrown in together on. The one that really, I think, probably holds the, the greatest significance for me on that front, because it's exactly as you just described it, was the uh, We Remember that we wrote after the horrible uh, shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. Um, that shooting took place on a, was that a Saturday? It was on Shabbat. Shabbat yeah. daytime. And uh, we were going to the studio on Monday to mix down tracks, different songs we'd already recorded. Exactly right. And you 
early that morning sent me a little like you know cursory recording of I was playing with the poem, the Jack Reamer Sylvan Cayman poem, uh, when the rising of the sun and it's going down, we remember them. And I just had this little melody and I was kind of tinkering with it. And you sent this over to me. And literally, by the time you came to pick me up to go to the studio, we're going to drive over to it. I was like, I already recorded on my phone a version that had the thread of what you had right. in there. It was totally structured around what you put in there, but no, but you it was kind yeah. of grown out into something and it had all the, ver- it was all laid out right. already. And by the time we got over to the studio, we we're like, we're not mixing anything today. We're right. recording this thing by Thursday of that first week since the shooting, the place was filled with all the local canters and music directors and talented artists uh, like Jared Stein playing violin. And I mean, like we had incredible people who all volunteered their time on no notice to, to create effectively a, a cantorial choir on that recording. And, and literally before the next Shabbat arrived, this beautiful piece yeah. was already in existence. And, and now it's sung in congregations all over the country. It, it, uh, I'm really, really grateful that you uh, somehow uh, happened upon my house for the Cincinnati Jewish Folk Festival. We Remember, composed by Mato Vu, based on the poem by rabbis Jack Reamer and Sylvan Kamens. In the rising of the sun, we remember. In the blowing of the wind, we remember. Opening of buds, we remember. We remember. In the blueness of the sky, we remember. In the rustling of the leaves, we remember. As the year starts and it ends, we remember. Well, and what was amazing about that, too, is I remember several months before that, before the shooting, I, w- I just had this like really creative afternoon up here at Stephen Wise Temple for work. And I went to one of the pianos at work and I was just like, there was just music coming out of me. And I sat down with a couple of different ideas. And one of them was that. And what you ended up doing with it, you know, was was. I love what you did with it, but the kernel of the idea was kind of there, but then, yeah. and I recorded it, which is a beautiful thing about how much this has all changed. It used to be like, you had to go find your tape recorder exactly. or whatever, but now like you got your phone with you, so you can just do a voice memo. And I had it, and I'd kind of forgotten that, that I'd it. even started it. Yeah. And then that weekend I was like, wouldn't, and, and that was also just, you know, how do you, and this is the the beauty of having a hobby, an avocation, a passion, you know, however you want to describe it, like music or for others, maybe it's art or sculpture. But I felt like in this moment of pain and, you know, confusion and questioning, well, you know, maybe we could respond with with music. Um, and I remembered that, and I had a work thing that I had to do that morning with the parents. We were doing something at the day school where I was going to come and speak to the parents about the tragedy and how to talk to your kids about that. So I really didn't have time to work on it. And then I was like, you know what? I'll just send it to Kenny. I'm sure he'll come up with a fun idea and, you know, meaningful idea. And what was delightful to me was then I came and picked you up and you're like, I got it. It's the I was thinking, listen to this. We literally put it up on, in the speakers in your car. I'm yeah. like, you got to listen to this. Like, yeah. well, we're going over to the studio, but you've got to hear this. Yeah, I was like, no, that's, that's it. That's we're there. We're there. We got yeah. it. And then when we got to the studio, exactly as you said, we told Kenley Mathis, our producer, Kenley, we're not going to be mixing the other song today. We're <laughs> recording a new song. Um, you know, so Havana Shir has been a huge part of your rabbinate as well, and you've had the opportunity to train now, really, you know, generations of song leaders, cantors, uh, you know, soloists. Um, how is that chapter of your rabbinate and your musical life? Um, you know, how how has that transformed? Your rabbinate, how has that affected you, touched you? It's a, a huge part of the story because I, I um, it really was born that I owe to uh, the great 
Debbie Friedman, Allah HaShalom. Um, Debbie, I had known Debbie, but not well. Uh, in my earlier years as a song leader, obviously I admired her greatly, uh, but I um, didn't really know her well until after I was ordained and I took a job in uh, Westchester Reform Temple in Scarsdale, New York. She was very close with my senior rabbi, now the president of the URJ, Rabbi Rick Jacobs. They were friends from way back, I think, at uh, uh, Camp Swig. They went back a long, long way. And so Debbie, in the late 1980s, uh, really made a very meaningful, powerful shift from just being just, being a great Jewish composer and performer, to really being a spiritual leader. Uh, and she was a big part of the invention of spirituality, uh, of... of um, of like healing prayer, of, of services that were aimed specifically at the whole content being a healing service. She really was in the first wave of folks who were inventing that. And with Rabbi Jacobs and with uh, uh, the rabbis over at Kolami in White Plains, the two congregations and Debbie had thrown in together uh, every other month they would partner with Debbie. The their, their rabbis there would partner with Debbie to lead a healing service. And of course, because Debbie was there, there were all kinds of people who came just because it's a chance to be with Debbie Friedman. Uh, but then there were, I remember those services, you know, a lot of uh, men and women with bandanas on their heads who were deep in treatment and really were there for the riches of praying in community and really having it aimed very specifically at how do we find sustenance in our souls when our bodies are betraying us and we're trying to make them whole again. Um, and I really learned, I, I, those services always were, took place on Thursdays, and I, uh, my day off was Thursdays. And I remember telling Rick, I'm like, there's just no way that I'm taking a day off when you guys are doing a healing service with Debbie Friedman. I'm going to be there. Um, I hope you're not going to be mad at me for blowing off my night off, but once a month, I'm going to be at the healing service. And so Debbie and I became very close during those years. Um, we started creating a lot of the content for those services together. My favorite story from that period of time was uh, one time she she lived in the city and so she would take a car. Uh, somebody would be a driver, bring her up to the uh, to Westchester County to do the service with us. So one time we're, we've we've met by phone over the week and we've prepped up all the content. What readings are we going to include and what kind of interactive stuff and what music will we sing of hers and also of other composers? And I've laid out the whole service and ready to go. And she comes running in from uh, from the car on the drive up. Everybody already in the place, ready for the thing to begin. And she's like, get it, get it, get it, get it. I, I, I've got this song, but I don't know how it goes. And I'm like, what? And she's like, no, I mean, like, I know how it goes, but like, I, I just, just came to me while I was sitting in the car and like, I need to grab a guitar and let's like wrap some chords around it and figure out what it sounds like. So that was those who sew. Um, she came into, we kind of went off in this little side room and she starts singing, those who sew, who sew in tears. We'll reap in joy, we'll reap in joy. The Azorim um, from uh, Birkat Amazon. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, uh, and I'm listening to this. So she had it in her head, but she right? didn't know she how just the chords would lay sitting out. in the backseat of the car. Right, right. And so she was like, I don't know how this thing like, go goes, you know. So I took out the guitar. We're like trying to like kind of lay it out and make it into a song. And the minute we finished that, we're like, we got to do this tonight. Like this wow. should go. To, so that was the first time it was ever sung. And now it's, you know this omnipresent healing prayer that's sung all over the world. It was a really fun 
opportunity to, to partner with her in that kind of way. So Debbie was the, really the inventor of Hava Nashira. Debbie with Jeff Klepper and with uh, Jerry Kay, who was the director of Olin St. Ruby Union Institute, the camp in Wisconsin at that time. They really invented Hava Nashira. And for years, Debbie, during those years I was in New York, she was like, you gotta come to Hava Nashira. I want you to be on faculty with us and help us teach. And I was a really busy assistant rabbi with little itty bitty children, babies, and I just could never make it work. And when I finally came to LA to, to become senior rabbi at Leo Beck Temple, that was 2003, I needed a few years before I started you know, doing recreational events above and beyond my rabbi, and I wanted to kind of learn how to be a senior rabbi. So it took a few years, but by 2007, I finally said, okay, I can do I'm going to do this right. thing. So I joined the faculty that, that spring, and yeah, I mean, it, it, it's been an extraordinary adventure. It's been whatever, 15 years that I've been a part of that little faculty family, which itself has gone through many changes over many years. But it is, that has been the, the uh, out of all of the different things I may do musically during the year, Havana Shura has been that place that has created a chevra for me, a real community of all these other artists, most of whom are spending their full-time work lives doing you know they're writing they're recording they're gigging on the weekends they're performing and touring all over the country um for me i'm one of the few in that group who i do a smattering of that kind of stuff but i have a full-time job as a as a rabbi of a synagogue um but yeah that's where all of these other great artists in our movement really became dear partners collaborators friends trusted confidants and advisors and uh and then yeah all the people who've come through that community over all the years i mean there are so many real giants of jewish music today who i remember as young participants at Havana. i mean i remember when noah aronson was you know just one of the kids out there at Havana and then one year we were like oh god he wrote this really cool melody for the baruch let's have noah come up and sing his baruch um, you know and it'd be kind of a way to get it out there into the Havana Shira community and now of course Noah is one of the most influential Jewish music musicians on the planet um, and there are so many stories like that so it's been a it really has been among the most uh, really gratifying things to be able to pay forward um, so much of what you know Debbie Danny Jeff those early pioneers of American contemporary Jewish music really paved this road that I didn't know existed in 1977 when I first headed off to camp. It ended up being the road that my you know entire life was, you know, the house of my life was built on that road. Um, and getting a chance to walk some other people into the neighborhood has been a great thrill. Well, and, you know, you think about sort of those full circle kinds of moments where this was something that sparked your love and your passion and your enthusiasm. And you go back to where we started the conversation of, you know, you with that guitar that's almost as big as you. Um, and, and now you're in a place where you're helping to inspire others and to, to teach them. And, and it's such a generous community where, you know, people are supporting one another and, uh, and embracing each other's creativity and each other's music. Um, you know, I, just conscious of uh, how much of your time I've taken up, but what I, what I want to end with is maybe just a question that can spark um, hope. And there's been a lot of that in our conversation, and a lot of joy and and uh, and beauty in the music, and in the way the music has touched you and allow you to touch others. These last couple of years, obviously, you know, we've all experienced uh, so many challenges. One of them that you and I spoke a lot about during the pandemic was just how frustrating and difficult it was to figure out how to experience worship without being able to be together, and how do you make music without being able to, um, you know, sing together people, yeah. or be with other people? And uh, and and I know we both, you know, over the last you know many months of of gradually coming back, just the joy how good it feels to have live music again and yeah. to sing with people and you know to know that that um i saw uh online a, a feed from leo beck temple of you and uh your new cantor sarah Hass, who was a, a student of mine in, in my my time in jerusalem and just watching the two of you singing together you know it's like oh that's how that's how it's, it's all to supposed to be. <laughs> exactly. We're supposed to make music with each other and and be with one another and sing with one another and um, and harmonize and all those beautiful things that happen. Um, so I'm just wondering, you know, what are some of the things that uh, that have been giving you hope as we've gradually been, you know, returning to in-person worship as communities coming 
back together in person in powerful ways. Um, you know, is there a moment that kind of stands out for you, sticks out for you as like, yes, that that's something that reminded me of why I first got excited about this yeah. all those years ago and, uh, and, and maybe reignited some of that, that passion. Yeah. There are a lot of moments, uh, really in the, the back part of the pandemic, there've been so many of those kinds of moments. One of them that stands out, I remember the first Shabbat of June, 2021, um, was our first outdoor in-person. We, we started migrating in May to having, uh, us webcast from the temple. So now instead of us being on screen from separate domiciles, now we're singing together. I was with our cantor, now retired cantor, Linda Cates, of course, her, both she and her husband, David, beloved here at Stephen Wise. Um, and of course, she spent most of her career here before she came and joined us at Leo back before her retirement. She was still with us at that time. And, uh, you know, people were used to seeing us taking turns singing on screen. Now we were back in person and there was just the gift of being able even on screen to share some interplay with another person in the front of the room. You can feel like we're kind of feeling each other a little bit. Um, but at the beginning of June, we set up, you know, obviously in separate pods, everybody outdoors in separate pods. You have these four people sitting together and these three and everybody had RSVP, but we put it on this little elbow of our, of our promenade of our campus, the, the largest spot where you could imagine both deep and wide being able to accommodate the kinds of numbers in potting that obviously the space requires a lot more space when you can't sit people right next to each other. So sure. we had to find the biggest spot that we could gather on the campus. And yeah, people were just kind of, fl- what was amazing was, well, here we all are, we're, we're praying together, singing together. We're all wearing masks at that point still, um, even outdoors. Uh, but there's a sound and it's ours. And people were discovering this like it was new. And what I remember feeling was, there was this weird sort of internal uh, debate. One was like, oh my God, it's tragic that people are seeing this as though it's like an innovation. This is what life has been like forever. And then there was the, 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 that's the shadow side of it. The side that had light all over it was, what if we could experience all the greatest joys of life like they in fact were fresh, mm-hmm. brand new. The Baal Shem Tov taught that we're supposed to see each morning that way. You know, if you've like, you've, your, your whole life will be increased if you can literally experience everything as if it's kind of being born and, and there's no assumption of, oh, of course, that's what it's like to be in a crowd of people singing together. Um, it felt that innovative to mm-hmm. do something that we had. I don't mean it in a pejorative way, but we, of course we took it for granted because whoever imagined a pandemic, right. um, that was incredibly inspiring. And there've been any number of times where other things that were firsts, but only firsts in this go around, they were just, for us, you know, our, our unlike wise, we were not back in person for our main sanctuary services in 2021. So we did do our family services and our children's services outdoors on our campus in 2021. But because of our location, we really couldn't do outdoor worship. We're right against the 405 and, uh, the, uh, and the Sepulveda Pass. And to do the art music, the way people would experience all the beautiful music with the choir and you know, the instruments and all that, there was just really no way to do that in a way that would be comfortable for people and elegant for people. And so we were online for two High Holy Days in a row. Um, so this past High Holy Days was the first time we were all back together as a community for Erev Rosh Hashanah, for Kol Nidre, together in our sanctuary. Um, that hadn't happened. Um, and uh, so if you think about missing two years, it means that there'd been three years since we'd actually experienced each sure. other like that. Um, yeah, it felt like almost in some ways that were even a little alarming, like we'd never done it before. There were parts, I'd done it for years and years, and there were things I didn't quite remember how we did it. You know, you had to kind of really relearn and redevelop those muscles, and that felt life-giving. Yeah, what a gift, and uh, so tragic that there was so much loss that led to that sense of gift. But, you know, those are the silver linings we try to find in life, and certainly those things that we so often just take for granted um, like, you know, being able to, Kenny, I've got an idea. I'm picking you up. 
you know, and then even just riding in a car together and then going and collaborating in a studio space together. Like, yeah, that's how actually life should be. You should be able to have those moments. And, and for a meaningful chunk of time, all those moments were taken away from us for, you know, all sorts of understandable and good reasons. But to be not fully on the other side of that, but, but certainly, you know, approaching a place where we can do that again, you realize what I hope is that, you know, we won't slip too quickly back into just taking that for granted and that we'll find the ways to continue to remind ourselves like, no, this is, um, this is pretty special and pretty beautiful and we're lucky. So let's hold on to that. I so remember thinking on those first couple of Shabbatot when the sound of, of collective singing actually felt, sounded strange. It was like you, you really kind of forgot what that sounded like. And I do remember at that time thinking, I want to keep this feeling like it's a surprise. How yeah. can I do that? How can I do that? How can I make this, this shock not become, you know, commonplace? Yeah. Uh, it's very hard to do, but, you know, you're right. For reasons that were heartbreaking and and a lot of suffering and a lot of loss took place along the way, um, but if it were not for the uh, the hardship of the pandemic, we would never in our lives have experienced something like that feeling uh, so imminent and and being so aware of what it it just felt like. What we do, um, we really claimed it. Yeah. in a way that never had before. And I think, uh, yeah, a lot of us, I hope that we'll all feel pretty determined to try to keep that feeling uh, feeling alive and not rote. Yeah. One thing, as you were saying that, it, it just struck me, we were lucky that, again, back to this sort of theme of serendipity, that you and I ended up being in the same cohort of the Institute of Jewish Spirituality at, in some ways, in some ways, the worst moment to do it, but in other ways, the best possible moment to do this, because uh, one of the courses that they took us through is the gift of awareness. You know, and I was, as you were saying that, I was really thinking about that. That, um, you know, there are gifts that were granted at, at certain times. You talked about that conversation with Levi Sell. You know, that was ended up being a, a tremendous gift to you, and frankly. I'll just say for me too, because had you gone to rabbinical school when you originally would have, you know, we would have probably missed each other be completely at HUC. That's yeah. Right. And you'd be like this, you know, cool buddy of my brother's who's, you know, uh, a an rabbi. old rabbi. Yeah, an older <laughs> rabbi. Um, but, you know, so, so the ripple effects of that. And so how do you cultivate a sense of awareness that, well, that was a gift, you yeah. know? And Didn't these last couple of way. years with all of the challenges and the loss and the pain, there were, there were gifts that came along with it, and how can we be aware of it and hold on to it? Uh, Rabbi Ken Chasen, happy birthday. Thank you so much for spending part of that blessed day with me, and I'm very sincere when I say as your friend, I'm very glad you were born. <laughs> Thank you very much, Rabbi Yosh. Well, that's our podcast. I'm so grateful to my dear friend and my beloved colleague and study partner, Rabbi Ken Chasen, for making time for us. Thank you, listener, for tuning in to Search for Meaning. Hey, share the podcast with a friend. Maybe they'll enjoy it as well. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. My gratitude to our producer, Ryan Gorsey, our editor, Raz Husseini. Our theme music was composed by myself and maestro David Cates and features a vocal by Josh Goldberg. Stay healthy, stay hopeful, and hey, stay tuned. Thanks for tuning in.